You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for showing up. And I thought I would answer some questions today that I've been getting in emails and things like that. The first one is about um, how do you love God? Um, That's a really good question. And I think that it's a really important question because, I mean, Jesus says that loving God is the greatest commandment in the law. He said that uh, in Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, this is, you know, in one sense, everyone that's truly born again loves God. You can't, you're not bored again if you don't love God. And if you, I think one of the things that people repent for in 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 the process of justification, in repenting and believing is they repent about who they think God is, their enemy or their friend. I think that in a very real sense, if love for God was a knob, every believer is automatically not on zero. So I think the question is really about how do we increase our love for God? Because quite honestly, I don't think that anybody should expect to have a bunch of love for God right away. Now, sometimes God gives people a, a assurance and a, an experience and a lot of things that really just, I think that's a great thing. And I don't want to diminish that at all. Um, but, the Bible talks about different ways in which we can fan the flame of our love for God. And I want to encourage people that, that think down on themselves because they don't really feel the love for God that they feel like they should. And that's okay. I think that when we look at some of what the Bible says about how to love God, we should recognize that there's no reason to... Um, to expect a, a perfect love for God right away or even before you kind of apply some of the principles that it teaches. I would say that there are two main ways in which we begin to have love for God that are not inherent, that is, that they're not automatic. And both of the two things that I'm going to mention are require a development. Um, and the first one is the knowledge of God. That is, the more that you know about him, the more that you love him. And that is so true. Um, we have, in the unbelieving world, most of what Satan wants to do is tell people that they wouldn't like God if they knew him. And they put forward, he puts forward all kinds of unbiblical stuff that gets them you know, believing that God is not somebody that they would like if they knew And so a lot of us, even when we are saved, kind of have a little bit of residual deception uh, in us about that aspect. I recently was listening to a lecture series by Paul Washer about discipleship for an upcoming project. 
and I heard a pretty cool quote from him. He said he was talking about this aspect of love for God is um, is developed through the knowledge of God. And he says this, this is how you have love for God. You grow in your knowledge of his virtue and of his glory and of his attributes. Then he says, and let me throw this word at you. That's not spoken enough. His beauty. Then he says, I've come to the realization that if theology is not beautiful, it's not biblical. So that's a really big part of of the love of God. And you can see that that's not an automatic thing. Now, Paul Washer, I think he's written a book on the doctrine of God, the teachings about God, the theology about who God is. And there's certainly a lot of great books out there. A.W. Tozer, I believe, um, has the sort of seminal book on the issue. But, I mean, the entire Bible is about this issue, even in the passages that are difficult. And the the whole chorus of it is speaking about a God who passionately loves and is is just a long-suffering, good, and perfect God. And I've said before, I think that we even get the concept of perfection. I mean, philosophically, have you ever thought about trying to define perfect? Because I think that we even get implanted the idea of perfection and what it would mean in terms of the attributes of somebody from God. We're actually deriving our very definition of perfect based solely on the person of God. It's sort of like an implant because otherwise it would be sort of meaningless to to define perfection. Anyway, um, that's really beside the point. So the other thing though, is what I wanted to spend a majority of the time on. And that is discovering that he loves and cares about you and my life. This is probably the biggest thing. And I've, I've spoken about this in lots of different ways and it's been something I've said for a long time. And I think that that goes even more to show that this issue has been just um, one of the single most important parts of my relationship with God. And that is realizing for real that he actually, I mean, not only knows me, but loves me. And and not because of anything that I did. I mean, as we're going to see, this was this love started way before that, um, before I could have even done anything for him while we were yet sinners, as the Bible says. God loves us. But I think to really be blunt about what of how we love God, if I could sum it up in one word, it would be thankfulness. And that sometimes requires time for things to happen for you to be thankful for. Now, I know that I could say theologically, and and even theologically, when I would say that, of course, the cross itself, um, which is one of the main reasons that the Bible says this is one of the primary motivators for your love for God. Um, 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. And that love that he's referring to earlier in John says, and this was his, was manifested the love of God towards us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 
Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I think that a lot of you would say, yeah, yeah, God loved us enough to do that. And I think I'm going to appeal to another thing later on, but it's unfortunate that I know this doesn't have the impact it should. And I I hope that it does. Um, But I think that because even those of us that are saved are sometimes gospel hardened, uh, we've heard that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so many times that those words and that concept has very little meaning. And I've tried to express the importance of spending more time learning about the gospel, learning about the different aspects of it. And hopefully this new project will um, offer some opportunities for that, but it probably won't be done for some time. But that's another issue altogether. Another verse that demonstrates this is Romans 5, 8, that says, God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, we love him because he first loved us. There's That principle is thankfulness in one sense. But you can see, even if we just, this theological aspect of it, we know that God sent his only begotten son to be a propitiation for us. That concept would take some time to fully comprehend. And the more that you comprehended what he did and the grace that was given to you when it certainly wasn't required. So this kind of ties in with the other one. The more that you understand about the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel, the more that you understand that you didn't really deserve what you got. And that that invokes, if you will, love. Uh, Jesus makes this point in Luke 7 when he says, Simon I have uh, something somewhat to say unto thee. Uh, and he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto thee, See, thou wast this woman. I entered into thine house. They gave me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gaveth me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, he's talking to the Pharisees here, um, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My my head with mine oil thou dost not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to him who is little forgiven, the same loveth little. And so the principle there is, Basically, one way to love much, to be aware of how much you're forgiven. And that can come in the blink of an eye at salvation. And But I think that when you dig it out and you see it in black and white and all the different ways that it is theologically, I'm trying here to show you that the love for God progresses over time. It It should be expected to, since... New believers aren't going to know the Bible and know the depths of the Bible um, and know the depths of the gospel. And the more that you understand of all those things, the more that you understand of your um, need to be forgiven and the fact that you have been. So theologically, there is that aspect of it. But there is another aspect of this thankfulness that I want to talk about. And, you know, it's really interesting to see that this is... a uh, something in the Old Testament. This is 
what David said was his reason for glorifying God's name forever. In Psalm 86, 12, 13, it says, I will glorify your name forever, for your loving kindness towards me is great. So the reason that David says that he's going to glorify his name forever was because of God's loving kindness towards me. Now, I don't want to say that um, this is all about us. And if he didn't love us, then we wouldn't. In one sense, I would say God is God and God deserves our praise regardless. But the thing that I'm trying to get at here is that when you discover that God of the universe, like the God who like created the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and everything that we know that that God also is caring actively about you and the things in your life and demonstrates that love to you uh, over and over and over. And it's the gentleness in which he does. And the problem I think here is that we all have this disease where we forget the things that he's done for us. Many of us that have been, you know, believers for some time, we have a list a mile long of the things that we're absolutely positive that that were amazing, awesome things that he's done for us. There's just n- simply no other explanation for it. But we, just like the children of Israel, quickly forget that he parted the Red Sea and quickly forget that he made the rocket Horeb um, into a fountain. I mean, it is good sometimes to just say what you're thankful for. I was at a home fellowship meeting the other day, and this couple was talking about this. Um, this they were driving to work in the morning because they were sharing the car, and they were kind of having a fight or whatnot. And and the wife said, "Name something that you're thankful for." And of course, you know when you're in a fight, you don't want to do any of that stuff. You're like <laughs> clouds, you know, or something silly like that. And they went back and forth and just started naming the things that they were thankful for. And by the time that it was done, it was all the the negativity was was gone the thankfulness is something that we are commanded to do in, in a lot of ways psalm 100 says enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise be thankful to him and bless his name for the lord is good his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures for all generations um and i wanted to say Again, this is something that takes time. It's like a best friend or somebody that's, as an adult, somebody that's been with you for a long time. The The friendship you have with that person did not happen overnight. It happened over many, um, many times when they were there for you in the past. And that is how this works. It's a relationship that he desires to have with us. He desires to be with us and to be go through the hard times with us he desires you to call on him in your time of need and because he wants to answer you in your time of need because he wants to develop an actual relationship with you and the problem is i think that sometimes we don't see these oppor- these times as opportunities for doing what we are what the meaning of life is um, that problem of evil video talked about one of the problems that people have with evil is that they don't see the things that happen in the context of the meaning of life, which is not to be happy. 
that is not the ultimate goal of life. And if it is your ultimate goal of life, then you have serious uh, problems with the way that the world is. But as Christians, if the meaning of life is not to be happy, but to know God, then sometimes going through difficult times is the best thing that we could do. But the good thing that we find out about him in those difficult times is that he is very good and that he is very, uh, we can run to him and, and be safe. He is our he is our strong tower and the righteous run to him and are safe. We have a great and mighty God, but also a God that is intensely passionate about his children. He really does love us. And I tell the story sometime about how as a new Christian, I was in the band and we traveled around a lot and I started to pray about the things that we needed because we were really in need a lot of times of things. And so I say about a year went by of me praying and God answering and me forgetting and me praying and God answering and me forgetting. And then I have told the story about or was walking up to a place that we were playing and we'd got there and everything worked out and something was answered that I didn't think was possible. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is the last time. Of course, it wasn't the last time, but I said, this is the last time I, I won't remember. These things have been amazing. You must really be listening to me and care about this stupid thing that I ask for. At least you care about it in the sense that by answering that, you know that it's going to make me love you more in a real way, not an obligated way, but begin to love you just like when you notice that your friend loves you. When you see a genuine love for you through your spouse or your friend, that encourages love uh, towards God, and God knows that. And because he desires you to know him and you to be in a relationship with him, that is his good pleasure to answer prayers. So a good thing to do would be to ask God, what what are the things in your life that you're not thankful for? Are you upset because you're not having the thing, the other thing that you want, or and you're still not thankful for all the other stuff that he did? You know, look around at your life and see if there are things that he's been doing for you and gotten you out of all kinds of messes that you got yourself into and did miraculous things. And are you thankful for those things? Um, uh, I'll read a couple of verses that are about this. Ephesians 5:18b through 20 says, "Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." Also, 1 Thessalonians 5:18 says, "In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you." There it is. That's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you to, in everything, give thanks. And that can happen functionally and practically through making a list. Make a list of the things that you to be thankful for in your life or to just be aware of them, look around. Um, but also the other things that we talked about, the knowledge of God through theological studies, these are all things that take time. They're, they You should not feel bad for not having immediately love for God in the way that uh, some people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time have. If your knob is not on 10, shoot for 10. But uh, know that it's not on zero either if you, if indeed you are saved. Um, also, as we mentioned, the idea of the gospel itself. You have been forgiven 
for much. And so that person loves much. And while that may be true for every one of us, we've all been forgiven for much. It's not simply that you um, did more than the other person who didn't forgive more. Well, I didn't do all that bad stuff, so I guess I won't love them very much. That's not what the point of this is. The point is the gospel, the understanding of the gospel, the more that you understand about in you know who you were when you were yet sinners, when God loved you, and the more that you understand about what you have been given now, the, these are things that through study, through diligent, just not even diligent, just, just passionate or regular reading of the scripture, it will always talk about. You're, you're, it's going to be on every page. So in one sense, it's as simple as reading the Bible, but it's reading the Bible um, with these things in mind. All right, let's move on to another subject entirely. This is something that I get a question about some aspect of it all the time and have thought about recently doing a full-length thing on it, treatment of it, but at least came to the conclusion that I'm not going to do it right now. I may do it later, but I don't think that I'm going to do it now. But there is one aspect of it that I've been wanting to talk about, at least mention, because it's not often brought up in the discussions about it. And I'm talking about the doctrine of hell. All kinds of different false teachings running around nowadays. Um, Most people that are mad about the existence of hell are either Seventh-day Adventists or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who believe in annihilationalism. And so almost every time I get something like that, it's it's uh, it's a Jehovah's Witness or a Seventh-day Adventist. The other thing lately is kind of a universalism, the Rob Bell thing, and lots of people talk about that. But there's also lots of in-betweeny sort of things. It's not eternal. It's not this. It's not that. And so I thought I just would do a big thing on it and just have it be like two hours long or probably an hour long. But... At least for now, I don't think that I'm going to do that. But like I said, I wanted to mention this one thing. I think that we need to include in our apologetic discussions about hell the fact that it is not one size fits all. And there are, if you want to put it this way, different levels of hell. Um, And I think that that resonates more with the person who's struggling with the doctrine Because I think part of what they're asking is it seems unjust that everybody gets the same thing. I think that they're appealing to a type of justice that is true. In one sense, I think you should validate their feeling that it seems unjust that they all get the exact same horrible, you know, whatever they would think, burning alive kind of thing. And... To that, I would say that that's not what the Bible teaches. It seems as though, and I'm going to be kind of careful with this because I don't think it's an explicit doctrine. I don't know. Maybe you can be the judge of it. I think it's it's really close to explicit, if not explicit. The let me just read a few passages for you. First of all, we do know that everybody gets judged according to their uh, works. I mean, to the deeds that they do in life. Um, let's read Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small. This is talking about the great white throne judgment, which theologically is only unbelievers that are at the great white throne judgment. It is after the millennial period. The It is part of the second resurrection. There's only two resurrections theologically, and this is the second one, what Daniel calls the resurrection of the unjust. And 
This is what uh, is said of that. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So, in one sense, these people are being... Now, all these people are going to go to hell. I mean, every one of them are going to hell. But they are being judged according to their deeds as well. Now, that alone is not anything to build doctrine off of. But there are plenty of places in the Bible where um, Jesus uh, particularly talks about people that are going to get a much worse punishment because of their deeds. It would be better for this man if he were never born and these things. It would be like... uh, tying a, a millstone around it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck um you know there is a sense that there is a much bigger thing that's going to happen to them on judgment day and I, of course i would say this completely refutes the idea of annihilationalism to people that uh, you know that you may know that are talking about there is no you know punishment one of the problems there is the same problem on the other extreme is that if, if you have annihilationalism that is you just sort of blink out and you become nothing then first of all what does jesus mean when he says it would be better for him if he never lived i mean it's the exact same thing as if he never lived there's no justice in just if in hitler blinking out of existence or anybody else blinking out of existence and never suffering any consequences for what they did that would be unjust and uh, i think people rightly rebel against that. It's unscriptural in many other ways too, but nevertheless, let's read some passages. Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at that at the day of judgment than for you. And thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, thou shalt be brought down to hell. For the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sidon, it would, been, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Luke twenty forty five through 47 says, Then in the audience of all the people he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, widows houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Now, none of us are thinking that this is talking about rewards in heaven. These guys were going to hell, and they are getting greater damnation. Romans 2, 3, verses 3 through 5. Romans 2, verses 3 through 5. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath um, and revelation of the judgment of God. So there, there is a treasuring up wrath. You can do things in those books that get recorded in the books. All of those things getting recorded. And you're treasuring up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath. That is not a good plan. Just throwing that out there. But... Everything that you're doing is getting written down. 
I mean, stuff that you've forgotten. Probably a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm talking to unbelievers now. Um, stuff. So probably a lot of that stuff you don't even remember doing, but you're going to remember it when it gets called out. And you're going to be judged for the stuff that you did. Now, the only other option is to have those things punished by somebody else. Those sins have to be punished. Because if they didn't, then as the Romans verse goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, so God can be the both just and the justifier. You know what it means by that? It means that God has to be just or else he's not perfect. If a judge lets criminals go, he's not a perfect judge. God must punish your sin. He has to do it. Because if he didn't, everybody would say, you imperfect God. But he came up with a way to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ. And the reason is, is because the punishment for that sin has been paid for 2,000 years ago. But you must repent and believe that Christ has done that for you. You've got to follow him. Count the cost before you do such a thing as following Christ. You know, count the cost of what it means to, to die to yourself and to let him be the king in your life. And to take yourself off the throne. Also, somebody asked me to to discuss what they call future events. They said that I don't really talk about what's going on in the world anymore and stuff like that. And I know that I don't. Uh, I guess part of the reason for that is that I think that other people are doing it and doing it better. I don't think that I've ever really been a news hound uh, too much, even when I was really, really serious about all the different, uh, you know, kind of conspiracy research stuff topics and stuff. When I was doing the Frank and Chris show, even that was the only time during the week when I really got caught up with what was going on. And that's, that's not a good thing. I always keep an eye on the news and to, to a certain degree, but I uh, do probably kind of not, not do it as much as uh, I don't know if I should or not. But the other thing is that, um, you know, I guess this is not where my heart is right now. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but, um, you know, I've got a lot of other passions and stuff that take up most of my time. And I do still listen to things like the Alex Jones show. I know everybody hates Alex Jones or whatever, but I think that he provides a good service in his uh, in what he does with the news. And I always end up, I know that everybody says the same thing. And I think that uh, it's, it's true. You know, I can't really listen to him anymore. I know I don't think he's a Jesuit CIA reptilian, but I just, you know, I don't really listen to him anymore. And he, he does kind of, evoke that kind of seriousness oh hey honey have we have you thought about storing up food because i think that we should you know <laughs> and you listen to him enough times in a row you're gonna be like you know yeah well i think we should really start doing that and it, it i don't think there's anything wrong with that I, I because i think that it is serious i mean we're dealing with a lot of serious stuff that that's happening it would be foolish to to disregard that for any of the reasons people say that you should and i think that uh he's a good source of news and speaking on other kind of current event topics, I guess, um, uh, I, I've been pretty interested in the Ron Paul stuff again. I tried to stay pretty neutral on it this time in the sense that I wasn't going to be like super ultra supportive Ron Paul nerd watching all the Ron Paul videos and like tearing up and stuff like that, like I did in 2008. Because, you know, I mean, it's not one that it just was a letdown because I knew it wasn't going to, you know, whatever. I But it was just... 
I had too much invested in it, I think, emotionally, and my conversations were all about it and stuff like that. And it hit me the other night as I stayed up to like 1 o'clock in the morning watching Ron Paul videos uh, when I finally succumbed to the to the coolness of Ron Paul because he really is just a cool guy and really solid. But, you know, he was doing some stuff that I was like, man, that is kind of a bummer that you did that. And said some stuff that, granted, it all worked out in his favor and it all bounced back, but I think that I realized as I was walking up to uh, our room there on that night that I think that it's just, it's kind of silly to put too much trust in a man because they'll always fail you, no matter if they're as, you know, cool as Ron Paul or not. And I think that there's certainly nothing wrong. What I would encourage people out there to do, and I think this is the best thing that we as Christians can do is to pray for fair elections, uh, especially during the primaries. I don't know if anybody has out there ever seen the black box voting stuff of Bev Harris, but that to me has been an issue that if I was going to get passionate politically about anything, it would be the voting machines issue. I think it is a uh, very important thing to make sure that we know that we can count the, the votes and that they're not remotely able to be changed by one person. That seems to be a really foolhardy decision. So what I think that I'd like to do is coming up on the primary there, because I think the New Hampshire primary was totally, if you ever watched the videos that Bev Harris had about that with, during the Ron Paul thing, it's really clear that something dirty went down during that thing. And I, it made me lose a lot of, I don't know, something with that. So I would just say that we need to put out a campaign before the primaries and before all the elections that there be fair elections and that we pray for them. We pray that any evil sort of intentions would be thwarted and that at the very least it could expose the voting system. That's To me, that would be a victory if even if whatever somebody got into office, but it exposed that the voting system was corrupt, that to me would be a pretty big step in the right direction because I think that is ultimately the problem here. But about future events, which is what he asked about, I don't really have that much to say. I don't really know much about future events and what's going to happen other than what the Bible says. And um, I do think that there's a lot more we can know about that. I think the answers are somewhere tucked away in Daniel 10 and 11. Um, and I think that corresponds to the wars and rumors of wars that uh, Christ was talking about. I think that we do need to get away from the idea that the Antichrist uh, is is not going to come in on a, uh, on a wave of wars. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that what we're seeing, you know, unrest in the Mideast right now is, is talking about that. I think it's far too ambiguous to be the Antichrist. I don't think that he is going to be that ambiguous, but at the same time, I have to say that there are aspects of Daniel that are very difficult, and I wouldn't be surprised if at least at first it was a little hidden. I think in Revelation 13, you see this beast emerge from the sea, fully um, fully transformed, amalgamized, all the beasts of Daniel 7 have been, have been, how do you say, basically con consolidated into 
Revelation 13.1, this one beast, he is, we see the unveiling of the amalgamation beast there in Revelation 13.1. But I think that the beast of Revelation, or excuse me, of Daniel 7, and connecting that with Daniel 10, and is a very important part of detailing how the Revelation 13.1 beast becomes that beast. And I think that we have some pretty funky ideas about what is going to happen with that based on the prevailing interpretation that Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 are the same thing. And I really think that that is preventing a lot of really good information about what could be known about the end time scenario. If you want to learn more about that, I've often recommended Charles Cooper's paper, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, equal or not equal. It's in four parts, four different PDFs, so I would recommend that to anybody that's interested in that. Okay, I thought I might do the show notes stuff here at the end of the show as opposed to at the beginning because sometimes people that are there don't really care about any of this stuff, but if you've made it this far, there's a greater possibility that you care about the show notes stuff. So the first thing is the recent past just put out some videos for the TV show, one of them called What About Those Who Have Never Heard the Gospel? And the other one called The Problem of Evil, Why Does a Good God Allow Suffering? Or something like that. Both of those you can get on the YouTube channel, also posted on the front page of Nowhere to Run Radio. But the thing is, I forgot to put the audio as a podcast, and I know some of you um aren't going to watch it and you're not going to ever hear it unless you uh, hear it in the podcast. So if you could send me an email and say, hey, yeah, could you put it on a podcast? I am one of those that only listen to things and never see the videos. Um, that'll kind of give me an idea of uh, to keep that in mind. And I'll also repost those as podcasts so you can hear those. And maybe it'll also encourage me to repost some other stuff or to post some other stuff that normally uh, you might not see. I guess I, I sort of assume that people see the videos, but I know that's just an assumption and probably a bad one. So um, the other thing, show note-wise, was the Expanded Christianity 101 DVDs. I just got these dual-layered DVDs that apparently hold, or they do, hold 8 gigs as opposed to 4 gigs. So I have put another 4 gigs of material on the Christianity 101 DVDs. Um, it's got the entire David Guzik archive on here, as well as a lot more videos and testimonies and just an expanded version. I took some of the teaching people out and rearranged and got some other teachers in. And, and so I think it's a much better version, although I am having trouble getting these to about 30% of the ones I'm burning are failing and they're becoming coasters and I can't quite figure out why yet. Uh, my burner apparently supports this dual layer type, but and I've even made it just do one time speed for you techies out there. Maybe you can help me out and figure out what's going on with these. It could be just duds, but moving on. The other idea that I had was concerning these DVDs and the ability to take this tool of being able to put eight gigs on one um, one DVD and it got me thinking about what could be done. I think that I'm in the process of developing and getting permission from people to use entire archives and to mail them out to people. I'm going to call it like the discipleship bomb or something like that. And you can for free give people 
like 30 gigs of material, including like the entire Apologetics 315 archive, the entire David Guzik or Damien Kyle archive and everything that everybody ever did in their life, you know, and it wouldn't be something I would advertise a lot because I just couldn't afford to, to do that too much, but I certainly could give it out to people that do seem to have that per, uh, thirst or called to preach or teach and uh, could just mail it out because also it would increase the mailing costs certainly overseas and I'd have to fill out customs things. Right now I don't have to fill out customs because I'm just sending one CD and there's just a lot of things. So it would be a lot more problematic, but I think the benefit would be much greater. I would also be working, hopefully, if we can get this, if it's even possible, uh, to, to get this all done in a torrent as well, even though it would be, as I said, something like 30 gigs. I think we could get a lot of people together to seed it, and so it could be a viable thing for people to download with one click. Uh, let's see here. I guess that's it. Got a lot of really good things to talk to you about here, hopefully next time when I hear, have some more information about it. But uh, for now... I'll just ask for your prayers for a few different things. First of all, I just had a, a little procedure done with my eye today and just pray for healing with that. And also pray for the main thing, which is the discipleship and evangelism of the people that I talk to um, through the various ways that I talk to folks. I just pray that you would pray for them. Pray for the unbelievers that they would be saved. Pray for the believers that they would be discipled. Pray against false teaching. Pray for revival among the truth movement and just be diligent in prayer in general for not just these things, but for those in your life, those that God has put on your heart to pray for. Don't neglect praying for them. Um, and thank you all for listening and caring, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.